You are tuned in to Intermission Conversations, a podcast series hosted by the founders of Intermission, myself, Jade Thacker, and my co-founder, Gabby Ron. If you're listening to this right now, the chances are that you're probably one of the innumerable professionals searching for innovative and creative ways to implement DEI strategies that are genuinely effective and engaging and interesting and dynamic. The failure of traditional DEI trainings is a wake-up call, and artists are up for the challenge. At Intermission, we work with a diverse range of artists in the realm of socially engaged art, meaning art that employs real-time creative participation and conversations as catalysts for learning and making and expanding our awareness and understanding around DEI. The artists we work with are each award-winning creatives and academics in their own right and cover critical topics ranging from how to identify and grow awareness of our own implicit biases and how those in turn affect social systems of all kinds. The artists we work with are also covering topics ranging from personal resiliency and burnout in the workplace to gender perception and dynamics of power to gun violence, biodiversity, and ecological justice, and so on. DEI in the past has never traditionally taken advantage of artists and socially engaged art in particular as a very effective method of engagement. So we're really excited to be now fostering such tremendous value for artists where they previously had no real access to these market opportunities within the DEI world. So today, we are very excited to introduce our listeners to Bayate Ross-Smith, who is the artist and founder behind the very first workshop series to join Intermission, titled Our Kind of People. The Our Kind of People workshop series is just one of the many socially engaged projects that Bayate continues to produce. And within the context of the DEI programming that we've done together, we've seen our kind of people serve as this really interesting, impactful resource to companies of many different fields and sizes and really helping teams expand their literacy and interest around DEI and, most importantly, gain tools towards better understanding their own preconceived notions around identity and how that tends to come up in daily life as unconscious biased behavior. So welcome, Bayate, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So coming from, you know, my and Gabby's background working with artists and in these different creative contexts, it's been really interesting to learn so much about the DEI world and in recent years to see, you know, how much criticism and growing criticism there is around this field and research around how, you know, it's traditionally ineffective and a lot of the DEI workshops of yesteryear aren't really getting to the heart of the matter and creating real culture shift. For us, it's been a really obvious trajectory to bring artists into this work, but our kind of people in particular has a very nuanced and thoughtful way of inviting people to participate that is not aggressive, that allows folks to sort of project their own experiences onto images and stories of other people that they've never met before, never seen before. And we've seen a lot of really interesting conversations emerge from that. 
So would love to hear from you about our kind of people, how the project began, what it is, and a little bit about your approach to inviting people in to talk about the images that they're seeing and share about themselves. You know, it's interesting. The Our Kind of People series, the inception of it really goes back to my experience at a historically black college and going through this process of dressing up in a suit, changing the way I walked and talked, and then going to these weekly meetings we would have at, at FAMU with Fortune 500 corporate executives. And one day I was very aware of the, we didn't have the term code switching back then, but how me and all my peers were code switching in a way that would defy a lot of the expectations of young black Americans. And that sat with me for years. And then after graduate school, I was working on a photo project that I thought was going to be a documentary about young black Americans who worked in corporate America. But then the images were decent. They weren't extraordinary. You know, a lot of times, like photographing people in corporate environments is just not that interesting. Mm -hmm. So I had interesting images of people in their personal lives and all the corporate ones were really, really boring. And I realized that what really got to the heart of the matter in terms of these images was looking at a face and what you associate with a certain face when that particular person is wearing different types of outfits that span formal to informal and span social class and education signifiers. So that's where the core of it came from. The series itself is a series of portraits and a sequence of six of the same person in clothing they all own. These are real people. They're not models. And the clothing ranges from formal to very informal. I photograph everyone on the same white background with the same lighting and the same facial expression, which is a blank facial expression. So it's devoid of emotion. And so when you look at each sequence of six people, the audience, each individual audience member, I should say, will project their own narratives onto each version of each individual subject, but also they will notice how the narratives that come into their mind shift between one subject to the next subject. And so the idea there is to really create a scenario where people reflect on what came into their mind, what they were thinking, and ask themselves, why did I think that? Something that's been so interesting in these workshops as we've seen team members interact with these pictures is just where they see themselves in the images and where they really don't identify with them and other things come up, signifiers around fear or safety or class and education. I heard you mention how you encourage participants to consider why did I think that? And that's a really critical question that should be rolling through our heads at all times. But you ask another really wonderful question of your participants which is how do I know what I know? I hear you say that regularly in these workshops, and I think that is really where folks start to tell their story, just where they came from, what their background is, really start to unpack where these notions arise from. And I think if we can just walk through the world asking ourselves 
these two questions every day. Why did I think that? How do I know what I know? It stops you in your tracks all the time. I do it all the time now because of these workshops. I'm constantly checking myself, noticing these things. Well, it's interesting to think about the subjectivity in what we know. And that's not necessarily the idea that what we think might be false or might be an opinion. It's more the idea that we each have a different way of seeing the world and therefore we each have a different way of framing the world. I could know something that's true. That doesn't mean that there's another truth that's just as valid. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what I hope people will think about with the question, how do I know what I know? Mm -hmm. Like if you go into any room anywhere in the world and you ask people to describe it, they'll describe the room slightly differently just mm -hmm. because of what stands out to them. And it's not like one person is telling the truth and another person's lying. It's just that certain things come to the forefront of our minds that mm -hmm. we would emphasize differently than other people because mm -hmm. we are different people. I think really pushing people to consider that is very critical in terms of people being open to where they might have blind spots mm -hmm. and being open to accepting new information. Mm -hmm. The new information doesn't necessarily invalidate your old information, but it is an and, mm -hmm. you know? So like geometry is math, so is calculus. One doesn't invalidate the other. They're just different mm -hmm. aspects of mathematics. Mm -hmm. And so with our kind of people series, it also explores this idea of identity as a set of criteria perhaps, but also... It is a performance, mm -hmm. and we perform identity in different circumstances. So there's a lot to consider and navigate as we engage with how we examine identity. I think it's the basic building block of human interactions mm -hmm. because the way that I identify or the way that I perceive myself is going to affect how I interact with you mm -hmm. as well as the way that I perceive you is going to affect how I interact with you mm -hmm. and vice versa. And that happens on an interpersonal level but also on a macro level when it's like one community to another community. So I think this way of thinking invites people into this concept that we are still always learning and always growing and there's something very vulnerable in that but it's extremely important. And it doesn't have to be groundbreaking or defying of roles that are important to you to stick to or of, of a certain history that's important for you to embody, but to continue to be willing to grow and evolve and to change. But that's the other thing that's like so interesting, Jade, is that it seems simple, but asking yourself, why did I think that? Asking yourself, how do I know what I know? Mm -hmm. At least from a North American standpoint, feels very groundbreaking ironically, in terms of like a sense of awareness. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be, but it for some reason it is, given how we are conditioned Certainly. To, to approach things in our culture. Definitely. And I think that's why this workshop is sort of especially beneficial when exercised multiple times or in conjunction with other workshops of yours in the sense that it's about expanding literacy, basically getting practice. I mean, any muscle needs to be worked and worked and worked in order to exercise itself without getting tired. So it's about putting it into practice and sort of living this new way of thinking and walking through the world. Yeah. And even though the images are, you know, studio photography, I think they actually apply very well to a daily lived experience in terms mm -hmm. of self-reflection. And that's where, you know, the work that you're doing with intermission is so critically important is that art and media 
are some of our best ways of examining stories, examining our understanding of the world around us, examining how we communicate, and then applying it to a daily lived experience. There's a lot of things you can kind of know intellectually, like someone told you that, or enough people told you that something is factual, so you know it. But it doesn't necessarily mean anything or resonate within your daily life and how it's lived Mm -hmm. until you have an experience that grounds it in daily life. And art and media are great vehicles for really making that connection. With a lot of DEI work, we're essentially trying to undo centuries, if not thousands of years, of inaccurate conditioning. But that's not going to happen in one session. It has to be ongoing and done in a way that, again, relates to a daily lived experience so people can feel how the ideas can be applied to what they go through on a daily basis. And you can't tell someone how to do that because you likely don't know their life well enough to tell them. They have to have that own discovery within themselves. So that's why I talk about my work as an artist in general as being work that's not telling people what to think, but it's creating scenarios where people are forced to question their pre-existing beliefs mm-hmm. and then ask themselves, why did I think that? Because that's where the discovery takes place. But I think one of the biggest struggles that artists, especially socially engaged artists, experience when sharing their work with the world is finding an audience that is genuinely seeking that impact or has the desire to be present in that context. I mean, a lot of the times socially engaged projects exist in these sort of happenstance ways and audience members kind of interact with them on the fly or in conjunction with other art experiences that don't necessarily elicit participation in that way. And it can be difficult to cite yourself there and really absorb that impact in a sustainable way. You know, the art world is a capitalist market-driven lexicon that really doesn't have the means or the interest really in supporting and sustaining socially engaged art as a critical field because there's not enough capital in behavior. To learn about this field of DEI work and to understand where some of the gaps have been in creating genuine experiences for people, it's been very validating to see how necessary socially engaged art and workshops like yours and your practice are. And it's been a really natural fit to introduce you to these folks and quite refreshing to most. I think that in a lot of these environments, a lot of these people in corporate settings and a lot of people who are in in fields that are not art and media related and aren't directly advocacy and social justice related, a lot of people are a lot more receptive to certain conversations and engaging in certain topics and posing certain questions than I think artists and other folks would think that they are. It's just that they don't necessarily have access Mm -hmm. to the artwork, to the conversations, to the ideas. And quite often, the exposure comes in an aggressive way, in a way that might be overly academic, and in a way that is not engaging. 
what I hope to do with my work is make it engaging and accessible. That's part of why something like multi-platform storytelling is important to me and being able to scale projects up and down is important because accessibility is a major aspect of this. Mm-hmm. And for quite often, well, for for quite a few years, art wasn't necessarily that accessible to the general public, at least a broad range of different types of art practices. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, a, a few people who were like in the canon of what would be in, you know, the major museums and a few people who did work that fit into what would be put in public places. But for most of human history, the arts weren't necessarily that accessible and they weren't accessible in a way that engaged people more on their terms. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a the large history of elitism there. And so when we remove that, we really can use art as a really profound teaching tool that affects people in a variety of ways. and helps them think and understand elements of the world that they can apply to their daily lived experience um, Mm -hmm. as individuals and in groups. Yeah. Well, you're also a teacher. Uh, You teach at NYU Tisch School of the Arts, um, but you have a lot of other really interesting intersections in your art practice and roles that you get to play, including being the very first artist in residence at Columbia Law School. I would love to hear more about that and what it's been like, especially bringing the Our Kind of People series to this community and its impact that you've witnessed in a legal context. Yeah. So being the inaugural artist in residence at Columbia Law School was very exciting. Um, and it was a very great experience. It's actually part of a larger initiative that I've been developing for a few years where I intend to take my work and perhaps the work of some colleagues of mine who are like-minded and bring it into law schools, law firms, district attorney's offices, and other spaces that are occupied by the legal community. And the reason I'm interested in doing that is because people with legal education and people who go into careers related to law often end up being people in policymaking professions or in professions that operate our legal system or professions that implement policy, or they're going directly into political leadership positions. And so my thinking with what I'm calling the Art of Justice Institute is that if we can affect them during their formal education and in an ongoing way, almost like continuing legal education in their professional lives, then we get to cultivate more thoughtful, aware policymakers, policy practitioners, legal practitioners who will go about doing their jobs in a more thoughtful, in a more equitable, in a more inclusive, in a more justified way than if they didn't have this exposure. I have a big smile on my face. (laughs) (laughs) You've shared a story with me in the past about showing the Our Kind of People series of images to a group of legal professionals to sort of yeah, examine or give them the opportunity to reveal some unconscious biases. And I always find it really quite interesting and crazy. Well, this was really striking. A fellow by the name of Michael Roosevelt, who lives in Oakland, 
who was a really big supporter of my work early on. He discovered me at some small, he discovered my work at some small gallery show in the Bay Area when I wasn't that far out of grad school. And he really liked my work and he worked with the California Judicial Council. And they organize a lot of different events and different programs in order to enhance the quality of work and the quality of experiences that professionals have working in the legal system. So he invited me to present my work at this conference, and what we were focusing on was language access in the courts. And they'd done a a variety of different things about verbal and written language. And Michael was a bit ahead of his time because he tapped me and he was like, we need someone to talk about visual language. Like that's critically, critically important and we're missing out on visual language. And it's as important, if not more ubiquitous to some extent than verbal and written language. Mm -hmm. So he had me present the Our Kind of People series at the conference. And we got into some really great conversations about the work and people's preconceptions and where they thought they stemmed from. And we talked about how different cultural frameworks based on where you come from, not only things like ethnicity and gender, but how that intersects with social class and the literal geography of where you come from affects your perceptions of other people and how we project these narratives onto other people. It was really, really fascinating. But one of the things that really stood out to me in the Art Kind of People series, there are images of me. Well, there's images of a lot of different people of various genders, sexes, ethnicities, races, social classes, so on and so forth. One of the sequences in the series is of me when I was much younger and I'm a black American. And another one was of my friend Keith. He's a white Australian guy, but he's lived here for years. And interestingly enough, Keith actually went to a historically black college. I always joke with him about that. That's why he's so cool. But, um, (laughs) But looking at the images of me and Keith and other people, but we eventually, the conversation eventually got to who do we have the most positive response to if we could summarize it that concisely and who do we have the most negative response to uh within each sequence so of all the six images of me which ones did they have the most positive response to which one did they have the most negative response to and then we did the same thing with keith and a few other people and so what ended up happening was um, with the images of me and i'm summarizing and generalizing what a couple of hundred people said in in one session but i think it's still relevant so They essentially felt like, okay, they had the most positive response to me when I was in a suit and the least positive response to me when I was wearing a hoodie, but when the hoodie was up and on. Mm -hmm. Um, There was another image in that sequence where the hoodie was off. With my friend Keith, they had the most positive response, they were saying, to him in this kind of hip outfit with like a knit cap on and a Marvin Gaye t-shirt and a zip-up sweater. And they had the least positive response to him in the suit. So I was like, okay, wait a minute. So like, why are so many of you having a positive response to me in a suit and the least positive response to him in the suit? That's like completely the opposite, which is not what I would have expected. Mm -hmm. So after a bit of conversation, they basically were like, well, I think part of it has to do with our position as court workers. And we work in the courts in California. And they were like, yeah, you know, I think when we see a white guy in a suit who looks too clean cut and too much like the ideal image, 
we start to get suspicious because it makes us think about a slick lawyer who's trying to get someone off of a crime that they committed or we think of like a corporate criminal trying mm-hmm. to get over or we think of like someone in a corporate environment in the industry who's just a quote unquote suit. Mm-hmm. And so that, that I guess that's what part of what we're feeding off of. And to me as a black American, it, it was fascinating. It also kind of made me chuckle. Even though these issues are serious, it made me think about like me getting ready to go somewhere and being like, okay, how should I dress for this environment? How will they perceive me as a black man? Like, can I wear this hoodie even though it's cold outside, even though it might be inclement weather? Like, where am I going? How might that affect how the police would deal with me? So on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So whenever I'm doing that, is there some white guy somewhere like putting on a suit? Like, wait, <laughs> should I put the tie on? Should I go tie off? I don't want them to think I'm a suit. I think you know? the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that had never occurred to me before. And I was like, well, what do you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are the really interesting things that emerge out of this workshop and these really s- strange, unsuspecting biases that come out of this that whole hundreds of people might identify with as evidenced in that story. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, and this was in California. So let me in, we were in Southern Cali was where the conference was. So it was a very diverse group of people in terms of ethnicity, race, and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, I would suspect I would suspect social class as well, but you know, that's kind of a hard thing to assess at a conference. Are there any other stories of note like that from your experience in sharing this work in different populations? Oh yeah. There's a <laughs> there's a really I had a really interesting experience showing work from this series in China years ago. I was fortunate to to show my work at the Lanzhou Photo Museum at the Lanzhou Photo Festival which is in the Guangdong province of China. You know, as I mentioned, there's people of all different backgrounds in the Art Kind of People series. And what I showed in China were, you know, a range of different people. But one of the the people I showed was these images I made of my friend Jean, who is Chinese-American. And from what we know of Jean's history, his family history, pretty positive that Jean's DNA is... 98, 100% Chinese. Like, he's, you know, biologically Chinese. Now, he's a Chinese-American because he grew up here. But biologically, DNA-wise, he's Chinese. So I'm showing it at this photo festival in China. And I'm talking to some of the Chinese people who are at the show. Now, granted, I'm talking to the people who speak good English. But you're still talking. These are Chinese people in China. They're definitely Chinese. And we're talking about the series, having a, you know interesting conversation, and they're enjoying the work. And I offhand sort of mentioned that Gene was Chinese as I talked about like different ethnicities of people and questioning how different ethnicities get perceived differently. And so yeah, I mentioned like yeah, you know, he's Chinese, and they were like, oh, he's Chinese. He doesn't look Chinese to us. And I was like, what? I know, I'm like, Gene looks Chinese. I know this dude looks Chinese. You know, and I've double-checked my sources, so to speak. So I'm like, I know he's Chinese, and I know that he looks Chinese. And then I'm in China, and they're like, nah, he don't look Chinese. So I was like, what is going on here? And it took a lot of conversation to kind of get to the core of that. But what it was, was that this particular group of of Chinese people who I was talking to, when they saw the images of Gene, 
they noticed his fashion sense. Because again, in the Art Kind of People series, it's all everyone's own clothing and it's worn in the style in which they would wear it on a daily basis. So they noticed his fashion sense and they associated his fashion sense more with a Japanese guy, maybe a really, really hip Korean guy. It's not what they associated with someone Chinese. So when they looked at the images, they were like, oh, he's not Chinese. He's East Asian from another part of the region. Just, you know, initial knee-jerk reaction. And that was so fascinating to me because, again, I was like, I know this dude looks Chinese. But they weren't looking at facial features and physical features the way that we're conditioned to do Mm -hmm. in the United States. They were seeing his clothing Mm -hmm. and they were like, oh, that's not how a Chinese dude Mm -hmm would rock those outfits. That's not how a Chinese dude would dress. So their mind just went someplace completely different. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that is a completely different way of thinking about things that I would have never thought of. That would have never occurred to me. It was just really fascinating. And again, it goes back to this, like, how do you know what you know? How did I know that Gene looked Chinese? Because I was framing looking Chinese in a very American way of assessing ethnicity and race But perhaps there's other ways that one can look like a certain thing. Well, it's that knee-jerk reaction that sort of allowed you to get there. And I think that's what's so critical about the kind of participation that's possible in these workshops is that folks do just sort of come out with their knee-jerk reactions and these very sort of basic objective responses to images of people that they don't know and sort of what gets projected onto them. And that's really interesting. And it kind of reminds me of some of the conversations that we've had with companies that have approached intermission, expressing a general desire to shift culture in the organization to one in which their team members feel like they can bring their whole selves to work. And that's a lot to ask of anyone and arguably impossible in a lot of ways. And I think it's really interesting to think about that in correspondence with the Our Kind of People series in the sense that we do costume ourselves, whether we think it or not. We make decisions based on how we want the world to see us and or not see us. But in the context of these conversations with various organizations, we've heard folks talk about a desire to create a level of comfort amongst their team members such that they can express dissenting opinions or bring more of their personality into uh, conversations or discussions at work. And Obviously, this kind of request, this kind of desire for a shift in culture has to happen over a really long period of time. And yeah, through can't fix all of this overnight. Absolutely. And, and I think this is why the type of work that you're doing and this type of storytelling is really important because, you know, it just allows people to enter a conversation that isn't necessarily about them at first. But it is based on their reactions and responses to things. So I'm curious to hear from you sort of some of your observations that you've had during workshops about the way you may have noticed participants emerging with more brave willingness to be themselves or share something. Yes, we do costume ourselves and we do play these different roles in life. So to some extent, you don't know your coworker in a certain capacity But to feel like on site you don't know them, I think, strikes a deeper chord about just being self-reflective on, like, what we think about, why our perceptions are our perceptions. Mm -hmm. You were also asking me about some things that have occurred and different conversations that have occurred in the workshops. And, you know, 
what I like about this work is the conversations can shift significantly depending on your environment. You know, so I talked previously about like showing these in China, showing these with the California Judicial Council. I'm pretty sure people in California would not have said Gene didn't look Chinese. Like I just, again, because there's a way of seeing that is North America, California. Sure. Maybe if someone was a very recent immigrant, maybe they might have said that, but it's just, you know, a different way of seeing. And, you know, I don't think that necessarily everyone or the majority of people even in China would have thought that Gene didn't look Chinese. But the fact that there was a group of people who had that initial reaction was, was striking to me because that, mm-hmm. to me, said, like, that is a thing that can happen. Mm-hmm. Well, another th- thing that we've, you know, I've noticed being a witness and a facilitator in some of your workshops is the way, for example, groups of human resources professionals may possess similar biases based on the way people present themselves. You know, we've seen some really interesting conversations come out about that and some different sorts of reactions and behaviors shared around that that can only lead to some sort of shift in how we continue to go about conducting business in that regard. And that's really important. And some of it, I think, also that comes up is we're all going to make assessments that often could be classified as assumptions when we see and interact with other people. The question becomes, what's reasonable versus unreasonable? Mm -hmm. If I go to play basketball and I don't have basketball sneakers on, people are going to look at me sideways. That's reasonable to be like, okay, what's up with this dude? Especially if you're around a bunch of like real, real hoopers. You know, (laughs) I think most of us expect the president to wear a suit when they do the state of the union address, right? Like it's not like if the president showed up in some casual clothes, we'd be like, what's what's up with this guy? Like, (laughs) this is important. Like, take it seriously. You know, there's that range. So I think that's like a good part of it. A good point to take away as well is that it, it is complicated. It is it is nuanced. And that's why these types of workshops are important. That's why inclusive and multi-representational art and media are important because it's going to take a variety of different tactics to recondition ourselves out of some very flawed ways of thinking and looking at one another. Yeah, definitely. Well, obviously, you know, in the last few years since 2020, much of our professional life and DEI experiences across the spectrum take place virtually now. And, you know, your practice is contingent upon participation and active participation. So I'm curious to hear from you how you feel the virtual nature of these workshops has been challenging or beneficial to the way folks can interact with it. You know, I think virtual interactions are a really great resource and they they're definitely something that we want to use productively obviously we have to think about and be strategic about how to actually use them most efficiently so what is it that we gain from virtual experiences and then what do we lose from not being in person and can we emphasize what we gain and attempt to minimize what we would lose right but i found them very effective within the workshops within setting up breakout rooms so what we'll do in the workshops is we have certain activities we do all together as one big group and the group could be as many as 100 
maybe 150 people. We could do a larger number of people in person, but then that also has its own drawback. And so what we do in the workshops is we have a segment of time where we have breakout sessions and breakout rooms, and that's super easy to just get in on video chat software and separate people into different breakout rooms. And those will be rooms of, you know, four to seven, maybe eight at the most people. And then people are able to have their own personal semi-private conversation amongst each other in a smaller group. Uh, it allows people to feel more empowered to speak up, more empowered to share. And then we go back into the larger group and each group selects someone to report back about what the most memorable and striking part of their conversation is. And they have a list of prompts that they are supposed to use to get the discussion started. And when they report back, they can share something that they discussed based on one of the prompts, or it can be a completely different kind of parallel thing that simply came up in the course of conversation that was really, really striking. And I think that experience of being in the breakout sessions together and then coming back and sharing the insights that they had in their small groups is really a compelling experience for the larger group. Mm -hmm. And that happens very effectively and efficiently in a virtual space. Yeah, and I, th I think there's something to be said for folks that are working at home, sort of having greater access to their personal selves, too, and perhaps a greater willingness to be open with that. I mean, the other thing is that a lot of coworkers are now pretty geographically disparate from one another and unable to meet in person, which is also a great opportunity for artists like yourself to explore other technologies and ways of creating globally accessible means of participating. Have you considered this, you know, throughout this workshop? What are your thoughts on interactive media in that regard? I mean, I think, you know, we have all of these technological tools and digital tools, and if we use them for quote-unquote good, we can actually accomplish a lot globally as a species and definitely within each of our communities. I think that none of these platforms are enough on their own. So I think it's good to try to use the virtual as a way of complementing what is in the, the physical spaces. And so to your point, what makes these virtual workshops extraordinary tools is you can get any number of people together anywhere in the world, for the most part, you know, almost at any given time. For example, if we're doing a breakout session and there's an office in Lagos and there's also an office in Frankfurt, right? And, you know, an office in New York, you can create a breakout session with some people from Lagos, some people from Frankfurt, and some people from New York. And they can all be in the same breakout session in a way that would not have been likely in physical space. So I think there's a, a lot of different ways to do that that can be beneficial. And it provides a lot more opportunity in terms of scheduling, as well as some of the different visual images that you can incorporate mm -hmm. into the workshop. Because if everyone has a decent computer or smartphone, there's a variety of different things you can share and have people interact with virtually. So I think it's a very good tool. I think we also have to be mindful of what types of communities, what types of environments, what types of subject matter work best in person or 
if it makes sense for there to be two virtual workshops and then the third in the series is in person. Those are the types of things we have to think about. But I think virtual as a tool is really, really powerful because it just opens up so many different options of things that wouldn't have been possibilities before. Further evidencing why artists are genuinely a wonderful candidate for helping to revolutionize the DEI world and the type of engagements that are possible. This sort of media experimentation is inherent in your set of interests and your familiarity and your skill set. So it's really exciting and wonderful to see the kinds of things that are possible within your practice in these new spheres. So we are so grateful to be working with you. And thank you so very much for joining us today in this conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. And it's been a thrill working with you all as well. I think we've done some really great work together and I'm very excited for the work we can continue to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Bayate. Thank you so much to our listeners. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our website, www.intermission.space to learn more about our workshops and our approach to this work. Thank you. Thank you.